Ruth chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. We finished Ruth on Wednesday night. As far as going through the book verse by verse, we finished up chapter 4 and, and we've covered the story. And I had thought earlier about doing a, a study on the a kind of a prophetic overview of the book of Ruth, but I went back over my notes and thought about what we've talked about and realized we've kind of done that. We've, we've covered um, so much of the prophetic picture that's given to us in this book. But there's one thing we haven't talked about. One picture that is that is awesome, and I want to show you this morning. I want to take a little bit of time to look at it, and I think its relevance is um, is immediate. It's it's pertinent to us, and I pray you'll be blessed by it. Verse one of chapter three. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, "My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman, with whose maids you were? Behold." He winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. And then he will tell you what you shall do. So she said to her, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close redeemer, close relative, a kinsman redeemer is the word there. And then he said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You've shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Or as another translation puts it, a woman worth winning. Now it is true, I am a close relative, however there is a closer relative than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you, as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. It's one of those interesting stories that we read and we think, what exactly is going on here with her going down and uncovering his feet and lying down? I can't even imagine what Ruth is thinking when Naomi tells her to do this. I mean, consider that that last sentence she says, he will tell you what you shall do, verse 4. Okay, so let me get this right. You're telling me to go to the place where Boaz is asleep, sneak in, in the dark, cover of night, Lift the covers off his feet, lie down, and he's going to tell me what to do next. Now this is taking a lot of trust on the part of Ruth. She has no idea what the implications might be here. What is Naomi? Remember, Ruth is a Moabitess, a Gentile outsider. She doesn't know the customs, the laws, the the history of Israel. She doesn't understand all the ins and outs of relationship and, and what this actually means. She just is told by Naomi, and she trusts Naomi, So she does, as Naomi says, and we see the story unfold before us, and it's an interesting one. 
We're going to get back to it in a minute, but before we do, I want you to put a finger there and open up to Matthew 24. Put a finger there and open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You have three places in Scripture. You need to have all three open if you can swing it there with your Bibles in your laps. Ruth 4, maybe take your little little bookmark if you've got it, put it there in Ruth so you can close that and go over to Matthew chapter 4 and then uh, open 1 Thessalonians 4 as well. It will make jumping back and forth a little bit easier for you. There's a phrase in our culture that evokes a great range of emotion, I've noticed. For some people, it, it brings up sadness and sorrow and a, a longing, a, a wistfulness. For others, it brings up apprehension and anxiety. And for still others, the same phrase develops and, and grows enthusiasm even to the point of an inexpressible, inexpressible joy. You all are familiar with this phrase. It's blatantly plastered about malls and reader boards right around this time of year, and it is, of course, back to school. Back to school. The phrase that causes my kids sadness and sorrow and a downcast expression. And yet for Cheryl and I, inexpressible joy. And it's not in getting the kids out of the house. That's not the point. But I love this time of year. I I don't know if you know this about me, but I am very much a forward-looking kind of guy. I look forward to the next thing coming and what's happened has happened and I'm I'm ready to just leave that and, and let's keep going forward. And so when the end of the summer comes, though we haven't had a whole lot of a summer here in the Northwest this year, have we? We've had mostly kind of a strange summer. A lot of rain, a lot of overcast weird but I'm ready I am ready for the fall I'm ready for the next season and I want to ask you students and parents specifically are you ready for the new school year are you ready to go back to school and how many of you are ready for summer to be over and fall to be upon us <laughs> we're in full back to school swing around our house when school closed shopping on Friday night that's always a kick And our kids are attempting to extract every last drop of their summer vacation, staying up later, doing everything they can to, you know, really get everything out of summer. But I'm looking forward. I'm excited. There's something to me about the fall. It's my favorite time of the year. I always look forward to the fall. It's not my favorite time of the year because of uh, the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, although that's, that's part of it. It's not my favorite time of year because the leaves change. It's my favorite time of year because, and listen to this, on the calendar in Israel there is a celebration that takes place. It's called Rosh Hashanah. It's a Jewish New Year. It's a time of the blowing of trumpets. And that excites me. Why would that excite you, Rick? Because after the blowing of the trumpets at Rosh Hashanah, there's, there's ten days. Hey, Jonathan. There's ten days. Huh? I just now saw you. Yeah. No, I knew you were back there, but you know, we're talking about Rosh Hashanah and, and eye contact. And Jonathan, you know, has been living in Israel and is home for a brief time with us, so talk to him if you get a chance to. Ask him, what's up over there? What's it like? But Rosh Hashanah, the blowing of the trumpets, and then there's ten days called the awesome days leading up to Yom Kippur the day of atonement and we talked about this two years ago some of you may recall this that there is a picture in there of those two celebrations of exactly what is coming on God's prophetic calendar a trumpet's going to sound a trumpet is going to sound and the church is going to be caught up 
And then there's going to be following that a period of awesome days, of tribulation, a period of mourning and repentance, especially among the people of Israel, followed by the Day of Atonement, which portrays pictures, that, that coming of Jesus Christ. Well, I get excited about this time of year. On the Jewish calendar, it's Tishri. On our calendar, it's September, October. Paul puts it this way, and I'm not saying that the coming of Jesus is going to happen in the fall. I don't have any guarantees of that, but I'm of the mindset that I think that would be awfully cool. It seems kind of the way God tends to do things. Now, if we get into late November and you're standing around going, Oh, he didn't come. Well, just wait till next fall. I'm sure he'll be here. But I'm always looking forward. I'm excited about that. The return of Jesus. If there's any one thing that gets my blood pumping, especially when it comes to the Word of God and teaching, it is talking about His return. It's talking about the coming of the Lord. There is nothing that I would rather talk about than His return. And his calling us home. Paul says in Romans 13.11, Know the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. Salvation is to us is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. The day is near. It's the greatest encouragement I can give you. The night is almost gone. The day is near. And if you're in the middle of the night, if you're in the throes of struggle, of depression, of heartache, the night's almost gone. And the day is very near. And so along with that promise of nearness, there comes something else in the Word, a biblical call to readiness. Ask parents and students, are you ready to go back to school? The bigger question, the more important question is, are you ready to go home? Are you ready? Are you ready? Titus 2.11, Paul said, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And the Bible is replete with the call to readiness, the challenge of readiness. Be prepared. Be ready. Beware. Be on the lookout. But contrary to popular opinion, salvation isn't a game of chance or surprise. God is not up there rolling the dice where each one of us are hoping for a certain outcome. Boy, if, you know, if I get a seven, then I'm saved. God isn't playing hide and seek with us where only a lucky few will actually find Him or where He suddenly jumps out and says, Surprise, I'm here! Looking to see if He caught somebody off guard. That is not God's intention. It's not His will. It's not His desire. He vigilantly forewarns all people to be ready. He tells us to live in readiness. In a state of looking for His return. His Spirit is actively at work right now throughout the world calling us, calling people to readiness. And this call to preparedness is the reason behind the very Bibles in your laps. If God wanted to shock us, surprise us, save only a handful, just show up all of a sudden to see if we were ready or not, we wouldn't even have the Word. He'd leave it all to chance. See if He caught you on a good day. But that's not the way God works. Now, some might argue that Jesus said we couldn't know the day or the hour. Rick, you allude to October time frame. And I'm I'm alluding to it, gang. I'm not saying. I'm not setting any time. I don't have that authority. 
But people say, you talk about the nearness of Christ, about His return being imminent, that Jesus said we couldn't know the day or the hour. In fact, Jesus compared His return to a thief in the night. Well, let's consider that. Matthew 24, verse 36. Jesus says, Of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. At this point, at least, when Jesus is speaking these words, He says, I'm not even sure. I don't even know. Only the Father truly knows the time of the Son's return. He goes on and says, The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. But let me explain something to you. That's not the way God wants it to be. It's the way it's going to be. What are you saying, Rick? That that something's going to happen out of God's will? Hey, God has given us free will. And what Jesus is describing is not, hey, God's going to show up and surprise everyone because He wants to. What He's saying is God's going to show up and surprise most people because most people just aren't paying attention. Because most aren't ready. That's the very reason Jesus says these words. They did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. He says it's going to be like that. He says in verse 40, there's going to be two men in a field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. Therefore be on the alert. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. And I think it's beautiful. God's plan is perfect. He didn't give us a deadline. He didn't tell us when it would be on purpose. Because if he did, we wouldn't be prepared. We'd wait till the last second. We'd live however we wanted. We would never grow toward that day. We would not grow up in righteousness. We would just put off getting right with him until seconds before he came. And most of us would miss it anyway. And so he keeps it quiet. We don't know the day or the hour. But listen, two things I want you to understand about the thief in the night. Number one, Jesus will only seem to be a thief to those who are not raptured. What do you mean? As he clearly spoke in verses 40 through 42, a time is coming when some will be taken and others will be left. We call it the rapture. It's from the Latin word raptus, and the Greek equivalent is harpazo. Keep your finger in Matthew 24 and go over to 1 Thessalonians 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 15. Paul is now writing and he says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. Harpazo, raptus, caught up. Together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, let me just give you a little insight into this. There are those who look at what Jesus says about two people being in a field, one taken and one left behind. And there are those who would say, hey, but perhaps the people who are taken are the evil ones. They're taken out, and those left behind are the church. Well, Paul explains exactly who's taken out here. Very clearly, there's no question about it. Who's caught up in verse 17? We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So those who are taken 
are very obviously believers in Jesus Christ. Very obviously the church. And for those who are taken, Jesus is not going to seem like a thief in the night. If you're the one who's taken, he doesn't seem like a thief. He will only seem like a thief to those who are not taken. There will be a sudden and I believe horrifying sense of of loss, of confusion, of what's going on here. I was just talking to him. What? what? What's happening? All these people have been lifted, stolen, taken away from us. And Jesus' statement about being a thief in the night will come to pass on this earth. He will seem as though a thief. For people will be caught up, whisked away, taken out, harpazoed. Now, some also might say, Rick, you talk about this rapture thing almost as much as you talk about Israel. Remember, there are four things about which Paul said, I do not want you to be uninformed. Two of them are Israel. One of them is the spiritual gifts, and the fourth one is the rapture of the church. In fact, if you look back there in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as to the rest who have no hope. Don't be uninformed about what's coming. Don't be uninformed about those who die in Christ because they're going to be pulled up first at the time of the rapture of the church. Jesus will only seem to be a thief to those who are not raptured. Keep your finger in 1 Thessalonians 4 and go back to Matthew 24. Second thing to understand about this is Jesus will only seem to be a thief to those who are not ready. Not only to those who are not raptured, in other words, those who are left, but those who are not ready, Jesus will seem to be a thief to them. Verse 43 of Matthew chapter 24 says, Be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would not have allowed, or would not, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. If he had known, if he had been ready, if he had been prepared, it's kind of like home alone. You know, when the, when, the, when the kid, he prepares for the coming of the thief. He knows the thieves are coming, so he sets up everything. So when the thieves come, he, he takes them out. And that's the way it is. For those who are not ready, he will seem like a thief. For those who are not prepared, who are not on the alert. The word Jesus uses, by the way, back in verse 42, where he says, Therefore, be on the alert, is the same word Paul uses... Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, flip back over there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul continues in this mindset, in this thinking, in this call to alertness. He says, as to the times and the epochs or seasons, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And while they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Verse 4. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So let us not sleep as others do. Let us be alert. That's the word. Alert. Same word Jesus uses in the Greek. Let us be alert and sober. Now others might still argue, yeah, but Rick, you talk about being alert, but Jesus still said only the Father knows the day or the hour. Which is true. But again, this is another reason why he calls people to be on the ready. So that we would avoid complacency. So that we would keep watch. 
Deadlines promote dilly-dallying. And you can write that down if you'd like. Deadlines promote dilly-dallying. And we're all about deadlines in our world. But the reality is when I know something is due, I wait personally, maybe it's just me, until the very last second to be ready for it. I was a pro of this when I was in high school. If I was a superhero, I would have been called the procrastinator. Because that's the way I lived my life. If I knew a paper was due on a Monday, I would open the books and begin thinking about it Sunday night at about 9.30 or 10. That is if there weren't any good shows on. The procrastinator, pulling up, putting it off. Because I knew, you know, if I had a good three, four, five hours, if I had to lose a little sleep, that was okay. I could get it done just on time. Pulling all-nighters, writing papers and, and studying for tests that I knew about all semester long. You know that feeling, in fact, Brian Regan talks about it. He says, you knew about the science project, you know, for, for nine months and your head pops off your pillow that morning and you go, oh no, <laughs> I got nothing. I got a box. <laughs> I got nothing. If we knew the day or the hour, we would do the same thing. The Lord knows our hearts. If we knew on October 21st, 2010, Jesus was returning, none of us would even attend church. Well, some of us would because we love Jesus so much. But many people would just blow the whole thing off and just say, I'll show up on October 20th, 2010. Or, you know, midnight. Maybe 12.01. And I guarantee you more people would be left behind than currently will. Because of the way we think. We put it off, we put it off, we put it off. You know, some of you are there right now. And I want to say this not with judgment, but with concern. Some of you know what God wants you to do. But you're putting it off. You know what He's called you to do. You know what His Word says about the next step in your life of faith. You know. You don't even need me to tell you. I see this all the time. All the time. Faith decisions, baptisms intentional Christian living put off because we like the people in Noah's day don't really believe in the imminency of Jesus coming we look at the writings of Paul we hear Paul say it's going to be any day salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed any second he's coming all indications lead to that we know this in our hearts but then we say yeah but but Paul said that 2,000 years ago (laughs) Paul said he could come any second 2,000 years ago. In fact, when you talk about the imminency of Jesus' return, I'm sure that Paul preached the same sermon 2,000 years ago. Paul expected Jesus to come that evening, the very next moment, possibly the next day. He was always looking and waiting and watching, and he was so wrong. 2,000 years. And it goes right back to the plan of God saying, I'm not going to tell you when. I want you to be ready. And I've told you this before, I can guarantee you Paul was not disappointed. Because the life that he lived expecting Jesus to come was far better than any life he could have lived knowing Jesus wasn't going to come for 2,000 years. Had Paul known it was a 2,000 year wait, complacency, lethargy, that kind of thing could easily set into the teaching. But you don't read that with Paul, do you? You read his letters, you get this sense that he is just saying, it's got, you've got to be ready. He's coming. Make a decision for Jesus now. His coming is just around the corner. People say, yeah, again, it was 2,000 years ago. Clearly someone was wrong. And that's exactly what the world says. It's exactly what the world says. 
It's been billions and billions of years. Isn't that interesting that the further down the line we go, the more time is given to the process, the, the theory of evolution. It just gets longer and longer. That's been billions. Billions and billions of years. Time just marches on. This fall is just one more. Go around the same old carousel. What if it's not? What if it's not? What if this fall, instead of the trumpets blown in the Jewish New Year celebration of Rosh Hashanah, another trumpet sounds? What if it's not next year or the year after? What if it's tomorrow? What if it's tonight? Are you ready? Are you ready to go? Peter said in 2 Peter 3, Know this, first of all, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And then Peter says, But all hasn't continued just as it was from the beginning of creation, has it? Remember the flood? Things did not just continue marching on. God did intervene in a massive, world-shaking, earth-shattering way. He describes the flood, which the people in Noah's day didn't believe would come. And then Paul says, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness. He's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the day of the Lord will come like a thief because most people are not going to be ready. That's why it's going to come like a thief. My point is this. The Father wants us to be dressed in readiness. Go back to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 12 verse 35. Jesus says, Be dressed in readiness. Keep your lamps lit. It's a good verse just to memorize, to have on your, on your mind and your heart. Be dressed in readiness. Keep your lamps lit. And so I ask the question, how do we get dressed in readiness? And we have indication, we have a perfect explanation here in the book of Ruth. How to be dressed in readiness. How to truly be ready anticipating and looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ to take his people home. Verse 1 of chapter 3, again, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maid you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Tonight. You can hear it in her voice, this sense of, Tonight's the night, Ruth. Tonight we're going to see something happen. And it's not what you think. You know, it's not tonight you're going to go down there and entice the man. Tonight you're going to slip in and you're going to seduce him. No, it's not it at all. There's a purity and a morality that is beautiful in this story. But Naomi says, tonight, tonight, be ready. How? How, how do I prepare, Naomi? How do I get ready? Now, men, you're going to have to kind of... You know the old uh, is a suspension of belief when you're watching TV or a movie or something. To, you, you forget that there are cameras around and, and you kind of enter into the story. And guys, you've got to forget for a moment that Ruth is a woman and you've got to enter into her story. This is easier for the women to do than for us guys. But we've got to place ourselves in the place of Ruth. Think as she might be thinking. Understand what she might be understanding. And Naomi is saying to her, tonight he's at the threshing floor. And Ruth's going, yeah, <laughs> tonight. What do I do? What are you hinting at here, Naomi? And here's what Naomi says, verse 3. Wash yourself, therefore. Anoint yourself. Put on your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Here's how you get ready. Get washed. Wash yourself. Get washed. 
getting washed, getting cleansed, getting immersed. It's a picture here, gang, of baptism. What some have called the first act of obedience of a new believer. What's amazing to me is that a lot of people will believe in Christ, give their life to Christ, fall in love with Christ, but it will be years and years before they get baptized. Before, before they're immersed. Some will wait years and years to be immersed because they were sprinkled as a child. We've been over this many, many times. The Bible doesn't say to get sprinkled. It says to get immersed. Different Greek word for immersed and sprinkled. And some will just wait and put it off and put it off and put it off. And you can read what the Bible says. You understand what Jesus says. He invites you to get immersed. There is something important to understand about that. It is a full body cleansing. The picture of what the Holy Spirit does for us when we come to Christ is not sprinkles us. It covers us, immerses us, floods us. And Acts chapter 2 verse 37 tells us in the very first day of the church, the people were pierced to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And throughout Acts, people come to a faith decision in Jesus and immediately they look for water. The Ethiopian eunuch, down into the water he goes with Philip and he's baptized. Cornelius and his family, they receive the Holy Spirit. They begin speaking in tongues. God proves his, his desire to bring the Gentiles into the church. And then they all get baptized. The Philippian jailer, he and his family, he says, what do I need to do to be saved? And, and Paul takes the opportunity right there. Well, let's get you dunked. And he says that very night, he and all his family were baptized. So I just asked this question. If you haven't been baptized, what are you waiting for? Why put off what the Lord says to do if you desire, as I do, to live in readiness, to be ready for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? Baptism, this, this mikvah, that's the Jewish phrase for the ceremonial cleansing. And you can, if you go over to Israel, you see in a number of archaeological finds, you see mikvahs. One that's fascinating to me is the mikvah at Qumran. Actually, there's more than one. A group of Jewish people who were kind of a break-off sect. They were the ones who are responsible for what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they lived out there in the desert of Qumran, in that area. And there are mikvahs that literally have steps going down into them. They're deep, ten feet deep. The steps go down and the steps come back out. And the Essenes were known to wash themselves ceremonially to go down and dunk themselves in and come right back out the other side every time they ate and every time specifically they were going to work on Torah. Every time they were going to sit down and copy in their scrolls. First, they went into the mikvah. They got cleansed. They got, they got cleansed. The idea of baptism wasn't new. It wasn't Jesus all of a sudden said, let's try this thing, let's dunk people. This was something understood in Jewish culture for thousands of years. Made sense. Oh, it's the ceremonial cleansing. I see. But now Jesus is saying, it's not just about a, a, a washing. Now it's a picture. Because now, when you go in and you come back out, that's a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. It's like me, Jesus says. And he applies it to himself. And all of a sudden, the meaning becomes rich and full. But I want you to understand something about this. Because most of you have it one time or another, been immersed, you've been baptized, you're sitting there going, okay, this is great, I hope someone around here who needs this is listening. We all need to get washed again and again and again. 
So I'd like you all to stand up. We're going to go down to the pond right now. <laughs> Not the kind of washing we're talking about. The Lord provides for an ongoing washing. Like those Essenes in the desert, an ongoing opportunity that we can go down into the mikveh and come back out and be cleansed again. And I need it. I need it bad. The stuff of the world gets on me. I don't know about you. Maybe, maybe you've got a Teflon coating, but it gets on me and it sticks. The stuff. I, I was out mowing our lawn yesterday. Well, I don't know. I didn't ask you guys if I could use the lawnmower. I just came and grabbed it and went over. Had a good time. I love that thing. I'm like a kid, you know, riding on a little ride on mower. I always wanted a tractor when I was a kid. So I'm out there riding around and, and cutting down the grass. And, and it had been raining early in the morning. So was, you know, there was stuff flying up and there were bugs out there. And by the time I got inside, the back of my neck back here was all itching and scratching. And there was grass everywhere. And, and you know what? I, I had to shower and just get it all off. How much more is it like that in the world that we live in? You're watching TV innocently. And a commercial comes on and, and you just go, oh man, I just got something on me there. You're talking with a friend and, and next thing you know at work or something and, and they launch into this, this crude joke and the rest of the day you got that stuff on you. You can't, man, I just want to get that out. I don't want to remember that. We see picture. You walk down the, the mall. <laughs> Hannah and Cheryl and I were in the mall Friday night doing the back to school clothes shopping. I thought it was precious. We start walking by Victoria's Secret and Hannah grabs my eyes and she's doing this. You know, walking along her hand there saying, Dad, you don't need to see this. And I'm like, thank you, Hannah, you're right. Because it sticks, the filth, the grime, the, the, the influences of the world, it gets on us, and frankly, I hate it. Have you seen the, the video that's been going around? I wanted to download it and show it to you this morning. I didn't have a chance to make it work. But it's a video by way of the master, um, Ray Comfort, does it. And he's out on the street, uh, on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and he's, he's interviewing people. He does this a lot, interviewing people about Jesus and what do they know about Jesus. And, and this particular clip only shows people who believe in Jesus, who believe in the Lord. And he asks them, he says, um, you believe in God? Yeah, yeah, I do, okay. Do you go to movies? Um, do you go to rated R movies, specifically? Yeah, and every one of them. Yeah, I'll, I'll go to a radar movie. And he said, well, do you, do you go to movies where God's name is used in vain? Yeah, yeah. Would you go to a movie where your mother's name was used throughout the movie, maligned and made fun of and, and ridiculed? Would you go to a movie like that? No way. Would you go to a movie where God's name is used in vain? And the second time he asked, every person asked, and I went, hmm. He makes the point that the, the point that we're giving money so that Hollywood can blaspheme the name of our God, and we sit there and we just listen to it, and it gets on us, and the stuff sticks. When I was in high school, I had a bad problem with language because in junior high, I thought it was cool. I thought this is the way I can I can look cool in front of my friends, and so I just started cussing a lot. And I got into high school. And it was so hard to get rid of that stuff. And I started to notice something. And it's just a movie thing, but it's so many other areas of our life. But I started to notice when I went to a movie that had a lot of foul language, the week or two following that, I couldn't help but have these words fly into my mind. If I got angry, out it came. The stuff sticks. So frustrating in those days. I want to get rid of this. How do I get rid of this, Lord? I've already been baptized. How do I get washed again? Continually cleansed, gang. The Word does that. The Word washes us. 
in a way that few other things possibly can. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And by the way, heading in the direction of the good, the acceptable, the perfect, it's the direction of holiness. And holiness, by definition, is happiness. That's where real joy is. It's not in having all the filth stick to you. It's being washed clean of that. But we need, because we walk in the flesh, we need a continual cleansing. We need an ongoing washing to take place. And Ephesians 5.25, Paul says, Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now listen, Bible study this fall may not be high on your list of priorities. But I'll tell you something. There's muck and junk that you're not going to get off any other way. I've shared before, yeah, it's my job. Yeah, I'm partially paid to show up here on Wednesday nights, midweek, and to teach the word. But I'll tell you what, I would do it anyway. Because I have gotten to the point where I need it. Sounds like a crutch, Rick. Yep. Because I've got a bad limp. I'm pretty lame on my own. I need it. As we head into the fall, settling back into schedules and weekly demands, I need to tell this to you, and I say it with love, you need to be in the Word. You need to be in the Word. And I'll give you a guarantee. If you commit to going verse by verse through 1 Samuel this fall, which we're going to start this Wednesday night, if you will commit to that and you are not completely satisfied, I'll give you your money back. Okay? Get washed. Get washed. We have got to get washed. And whether we've been washed in the past or not, as we walk the road of life, it's a continual washing, a continual cleansing. But there's more. Naomi said to Ruth, get anointed. we got to get anointed, Ruth. You can wash all the stuff off, but you still smell like you. (laughs) Now, maybe you smell good when you wash the stuff off, but when I still smell like me, I think, I need some English leather, you know? (laughs) need a little something to kind of get us beyond the normal Rick smell. The word anointing that is used here, get anointed, anoint yourself. The Greek word in the New Testament, it's chrisma. Where we get our word charisma, which is why a lot of times when you hear Pentecostal churches or Pentecostal magazines, charisma is the name of a Pentecostal magazine. That's where it comes from. Charisma, anointing, anointed. It's closely tied to the outpouring and the gifts of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Paul writes, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Now you get washed. This is something that you can do. You have control over. Day in, day out. You can be in the Word. You can make that decision and seek that washing. The anointing. The anointing. Getting anointed is something God offers. Something he wants to do with every single believer and not just with a select few. Turn in your Bibles quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I just want to read through this to you and let you listen to Paul's words on the anointing, the chrisma. Which also, by the way, is translated gifts. Gifts. Watch this. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. So here's that fourth thing. In two weeks, that's, I wanted to do that. I want to make sure we covered Israel. 
I don't want you to be unaware about Israel. He says two different places. I don't want you to be unaware about what happens when you die or the rapture of the church. He says. And finally, I don't want you to be unaware about the spiritual gifts. Verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. That's pretty strong language, gang. In other words, no one is going to blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ who is speaking by the Spirit of God. If you hear someone take Jesus' name in vain, that's not from the Spirit. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. He says there are a variety of gifts, Christmas. It's not Christmas, it's Christmas. But the same Spirit, verse 5, there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit so that they can look holy and righteous and cool in front of all their Christian friends. Oh, I'm sorry. It says no. Each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, a word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by one Spirit. To another, the effecting of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing of spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, interpretation of tongues. But... One and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. For even as the body is one, and yet it has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink, Paul says, of one Spirit. Get washed. It's a picture of baptism. Get anointed. It is a picture of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. A phrase, by the way, that was coined by Jesus himself. John chapter 1, verse 33. Acts chapter 1, verse 5. And the anointing and the gifting that Paul is talking about, listen to me, is essential to living in a state of readiness for the coming of Jesus. We need to be anointed people. I pray that this fellowship is an anointed fellowship because it goes to our readiness, our preparation, our sensitivity to what God is doing spiritually in this world, in our lives. And Jude writes in Jude 20, You beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously, for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Now let me tell you something that's kind of a new thought for me. And I prayed about this and I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. If you think I'm wrong, study it, come back to me, let's talk about this. But as much as the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a happening, it is also a continual happening. It is not something that happens once. I no longer believe it's a single event. The outpouring of God's Spirit. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, when He says, Ask, seek, and knock. You Bible students remember this. Ask, seek, seek, and knock. The way those words are written in the Greek literally is keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. You keep coming back to the Father time and time again saying, I need the outpouring. I want more Christmas. 
We need a little Christmas. You know, you can make a song about that. I want more of what you have. More of your spirit. More of your wisdom. More of your peace. More of your gifts. For the common good. I want more. Some will say, I received the Holy Spirit 30 years ago when I first became a Christian. Haven't, haven't needed to do anything else since. And that's like the husband saying to the wife, I told you I loved you on our wedding day. I'll tell you again if it changes. I got the Holy Spirit back then. That was my moment in the sun when He came upon me. I received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Some might say immediately my baptism. Others might say it took years. And, and I received that gift, that outpouring, that anointing of the Holy Spirit. And I say, great, go back for more. Because what happens, I don't know about you, but in my life, I can shower, I can put on the English leather, but the next morning when I get up, i got to do it all over again. I'm in an ongoing process of fighting my flesh to be clean and to smell good. And the spiritual application of that should be obvious. We are in a constant battle against our flesh. Right, Barb? <laughs> I'm picking on her. Because she just shares we're praying together that this has been one of those weeks where God just kept saying, it's not about you. Well, why would Barb have a week like that? I mean, she's been walking with the Spirit a long time. She loves the Lord. It's apparent. How in the world could she have a week like... Because we need the ongoing outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We need continual anointing. We need to continue to get washed again and again and again as we get closer to the day as it draws near. And Christ Jesus has more of Himself than you or I could ever possibly ask for. So don't feel selfish by going back to the Father and saying, Can I have more of your Spirit today? Can I have more of an outpouring? Not so that you can get high. Not so that you can impress other Christians. Please, never ask the Father for more of His Spirit so you can impress somebody. But so that you can be more effective for the kingdom. So that you can serve better. So that you can witness more powerfully. Lord, can I have some more? Get anointed. Get washed. And number three, well wait before I get there. 1 John 2.20, listen to this. John writes, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. You have an anointing. As for you, he says in verse 27 of 1 John chapter 2, the anointing which you received from him abides in you and you have no need for anyone to teach you. And the context of that gang is John is especially warning against teachers of false doctrine. You don't have to go out somewhere and get teaching. Some of you might say, well Rick, you do a lot of teaching at the bridge. You're saying, I don't need you to teach me? Yes. You don't need me to teach you. But prayerfully, we're going through this word together. And prayerfully, what I say and share on a Sunday morning, on a Wednesday night, or any other time, just sends you back home to reopen the word and study for yourself and know what is right and true and perfect. I am absolutely against the idea of anybody walking out the door and saying, I got all I needed to know from Rick. My job is to stir you up and send you out and then you take the word. You have no need of anyone to teach you, he says, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Lord, could I have more anointing today? How many of you, when you open up the Bible to read at home, start by saying... Spirit, will you teach me today? Father, I need your Spirit to explain what I'm about to read. 
You notice I do that pretty regularly when I'm about to teach. Father, give us your word. Holy Spirit, be our teacher this morning. It's not just rote for me. I have to ask because if I don't, I don't know what I'm talking about. Where does the understanding come from, Rick, that, that you get when you read these things? You see all these little pictures and types and things throughout the Scripture. Where does it come from? It's not from me, but from the Spirit, from the anointing. And you have no, one, no need for anyone to teach you. The anointing abides in you and teaches you. Get washed, get anointed. Number three, get dressed. Get dressed. The indication here is wonderful. Put on your best clothes, she says. Remember what Jesus said, Luke 12, 35. Be dressed in readiness. Keep your lamps lit. What Jesus meant when he said, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. And what Naomi says, means when she says, put on your best clothes, is the same thing. In both instances, the people, Naomi and Jesus, are talking about being ready for a wedding. Being ready for a wedding. You see, at this point, it's entirely likely Ruth was still wearing clothes of mourning after the death of her husband. Likely they're back in the land, but she's still dressed in mourning garb. And Naomi is simply saying to her, put off that old stuff. Put off the clothes of mourning. You've mourned long enough. Get dressed in something a little snazzy. Something kind of hip. You know, put on something bright and colorful. These black clothes of mourning that you're just dragging around, it's getting depressing. And you don't want to show up on a guy's, you know, at a guy's feet. Dress like that. Get on your best clothes, your clothes of readiness. It's time to spruce up for the wedding. Getting washed, getting anointed, getting dressed. Ruth didn't wear a wedding gown to meet Boaz, but the idea is that the season of mourning is over. Time to move forward. A season of grief. It's past, Ruth. It's time to remove the sorrow that comes from all that stuff behind you and to put on the clothing of joy that anticipates what is before you. Do you get that? Do you hear what the application is for us? The stuff behind us. That's the season of mourning. That's the stuff that Satan whispers again and again. Sinner, you're guilty. Remember, I had a Bible study with a guy on Friday. And this has been a round and a round thing we've been talking about. I can't let go of my guilt. Well, you need to take off the clothes of mourning. You stop buffeting yourself about the face and head for all the things that you did back there. That's the mourning clothes. You need to get dressed because there's a wedding coming. Dressed in anticipation and excitement for that. The clothing of joy. There's nothing glum about Christianity. Yeah, we've got to get up early this morning because we've got to go to church. And we got church Wednesday night because Rick Gilt tripped us into it. His wife's probably going to be starting talking about those women's Bible studies. Got to do that. Worship went awfully long this morning. Did you notice that? They did like an extra song or something. I don't know what it was. Christianity is not glum, it's not grim. Or as Jim Crouch said on Friday, it's not glim. It's kind of glum and grim put together. It's not a glim thing. Jesus came to give, listen, Isaiah 61 verse 3. Jesus came to give a garland instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. And you can instantaneously, no matter where you are, slip into the garments of joy at any moment of the day by worshiping. And praise. 
You get washed in the Word, get anointed by the Spirit, and you can worship God at any moment and instantaneously be in the place of joy. Praise does that, doesn't it? Doesn't it lift us out of ourselves and fill us with the joy of the Lord? The Bible even says praise and worship looks good on you. So if you need an opinion... You know, as we were trying on the clothes Friday night, and I came out with a shirt on, and I said, what do you think about this show? I said, uh, okay, I'll just throw that. But what about this one? She liked this one. That's why I'm wearing it this morning. What do you think? The Bible has an opinion. Psalm 141, verse 1. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant, and praise is becoming. It's becoming. It looks good on you. I have a picture of my daughter that is on my computer and every now and then I, I put it up as, as, as a backdrop on my, on my computer and it's a year ago and it's Hannah at creation it's not the greatest picture in the world it's a little fuzzy but she's worshipping and it's got to be one of my favorite pictures of her because she doesn't even know the camera's being you know the, the picture was being taken and she's just worshipping and it looks good on her and I might add, by the way, every now and then when we're worshiping up here and I open my eyes and I glance out, you don't, you don't look good when you're singing praise. You do. Real good. Now some of you, when you come up, you know, or call me during the week and you, you complain and you're whining about something, you don't look so good. I, I hate to tell you. I know I look pretty ugly when I'm complaining. But when I worship, I'm putting on the right clothes. Now, there's something else that's, that's interesting here. You need to see. Verse 4. Naomi says, It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. You shall go and uncover his feet and lie down, and then he will tell you what to do. In verse 5, she said, All that you say, I will do. We talked about this in some depth on Wednesday night. The idea of Ruth uncovering the feet wasn't an immoral thing. It wasn't a seductive thing. It was saying to Boaz, in essence, she uncovered his feet, she laid out his feet, and she's saying to him, Will you be my covering? Will you be my covering? I want to enter into a relationship with you as my husband, as my authority in a husband-wife relationship. Will you cover me? She didn't grab the end of his robe and throw it over herself. And say, <laughs> there we go. She didn't lay down next to him. She laid down at his feet, uncovered them, and said, will you, will you cover me? But what's interesting to me is that Naomi tells her, she says, she says, Ruth, notice the place where he lies. I read that and, and I thought, I've heard that before. I've heard that. It was Matthew chapter 28, verse 6. When the angel said to Mary, He's not here, He's risen, just as He said, Come see the place where He was lying. Take note of the place where He lies. Pay attention to that, Ruth. You need to know where He lies so that when the lights are out and everybody's gone to sleep, you can find Him. And the same is true for us. Take note of the place where He was lying. We do it every time we take communion together. We take note of the place where he lies. By the way, something else interesting, Luke 22, verse 17 says, When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And what did Naomi say to Ruth? She said, Wait until he's finished eating and drinking. Wait until after he is finished drinking. And then notice the place where he lies. And it was after Jesus says, I will not drink any more of the fruit of this vine until the kingdom comes. After that, Ruth noticed the place where he was lying. The parallel is, is beautiful. 
That place of communion for us. We notice the place where he was lying. And we share in that, in that juice. It's, it's a picture for us of the fruit of the vine. Which Jesus says, I'm not drinking that again until I drink it with you. At the feast. At the wedding. We're going we're gonna to share the wine then. It's going to flow and the joy will be amazing. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.26, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Well, Ruth does all these things. She gets washed, she gets anointed, she gets dressed, and she notices the place where Boaz lies. She notices where he lies. Where is that? Where did Ruth go? The threshing floor. The threshing floor. Naomi said in verse 2, Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Understand the threshing floor in Scripture is the place of winnowing. It's the separation of the barley when it's shaken free from the chaff. It's that place where the wind would blow out the flaky, useless husks, leaving only the harvested kernels of barley or wheat set apart and saved to be sold after the harvest, to be eaten, to be ingested, taken in. And in the Bible, the threshing floor is closely connected to the place of lamentation and judgment. To go back, and I'll encourage you to do this on your own, Genesis chapter 50. Read about Joseph as he lamented the death of his father Jacob, and notice where it is he laments Jacob's death. It's at the threshing floor of Atad. We go over to 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 6, and it's an interesting story, that fascinating story. In fact, David alluded to it during communion this morning. The other David, King David, is bringing in the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. He's very excited about this. He's got the band playing. He's got a brand new cart that was made and the Ark of the Covenant is hooked up onto that cart and they're rolling along. And the gospel chariot is just kind of rolling along toward Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, that cart kind of tips. One of the oxen bumps into it and the Ark begins to fall off. And a guy named Uzzah, poor little Uzzah, reaches out to stabilize the Ark of the Covenant and dies instantly. Because there was a right way to carry the Ark and a wrong way to do it. It was never to be placed on a cart and pulled by oxen. It was to be only carried by the priests on poles. And no man was to touch it. Laza reached out and grabbed it and touched it. Judgment happened. Where? 2 Samuel 6.6 at the threshing floor of Nacon. And Isaiah gave a prophecy of the defeat of of Babylon by Assyria in 689 B.C. But listen to this prophecy. It's interesting. I think it has a dual purpose to it. Isaiah 21 verse 3, he writes, For this reason my loins are full of anguish. Pains have seized me like the pains of a woman in labor. I am, I am so bewildered, I cannot hear. So terrified, I cannot see. And by the way, that often was the experience of the prophets. It wasn't, Thus saith the Lord, I am looking holier than thou as I express to you what you need to know. It was terror. It was horror. It was seeing pictures given by God and it literally freaked him out because he had no idea what this was about. And he says, I'm in this place where I'm like a woman giving birth. I'm so bewildered I cannot hear. So terrified I cannot see, Isaiah says. My mind reels. Horror overwhelms me. The twilight I long for has been turned for me into trembling. And the twilight game, the peace that Israel longs for is going to first be turned into a time of trembling. In fact, Isaiah says in verse 10 of chapter 21, Oh, my threshed people and my afflicted 
of the threshing floor. The threshing floor in the Bible is a picture for us of the tribulation. Of judgment. Of lamentation. Of despair. It indicates that place of mourning and judgment and trial. The tribulation. Where we've talked about before, it's a time that God will use to wake up the Jewish people. To shake up this world. And ultimately to make up the millennial kingdom, those who will enter into the millennium. In Matthew chapter 3 verse 12, John the Baptist said of Jesus, His winnowing fork is in his hand. Oh wait a minute, Boaz. Boaz winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Boaz, Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, his winnowing floor, fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Boaz was at the threshing floor at night, winnowing fork in hand, ready to separate the barley from the chaff. And at the threshing floor, the chaff is thrown to the wind, goes into the fire, is burned. And I tell you this as a cautionary note that this world is about to go through a severe threshing. Matthew 24 verse 21 Jesus said there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will. It's going to be a time of separation the wheat from the chaff. A time of great turmoil described in detail in Revelation chapter chapters what in Revelation? Bible students, do you remember? 6 through 19. Who got that? Yes. Chapter 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation. You can read about it in detail, the horror, the brutality of the tribulation. A seven year period of time. It will come sometime after. After the rapture. After the church is taking out. And I want you to hear this. We'll end here. Where was Ruth at the threshing floor? The feet of Boaz, her kinsman redeemer. That's where Ruth was. Ruth, the picture of the church, was there at the threshing floor, but not being threshed. She was at the feet of her kinsman redeemer. Verse 13. He said, Remain this night, and when morning comes, If he will redeem you, good, let him. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you. When morning comes, Ruth, I will redeem you. As the Lord lives, and Boaz says gently, lovingly to her, lie down until the morning. Stay here next to me. Stay here at my feet until the morning would come. Is Boaz suggesting they sleep together? No. He's saying, I've got you covered, Ruth. I'll protect you. No need to be walking home in the dark in the danger that's out there. You stay here. I will protect you until the morning. Lie down. Stay with me. And Ruth waited out the night there covered and protected by Boaz at the feet of her kinsman redeemer. The Bible tells us clearly a great threshing is coming. A final judgment of God on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. But at that time At that time, another bride, the church, will rest secure at the feet of Jesus. Isaiah 26, 20, and 21, a a verse, a couple of verses that I've long thought indicated the rapture of the church. In the Old Testament, which is a wonderful place to find this information, he says, Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. 
For behold, the Lord is about to come out from His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. But my people, He says, come. Come into your rooms. What rooms? The rooms that He's prepared for us. John 14, 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And that's the promise. That's the guarantee. Not that He would come as a thief for you and I, because we are not of the night. We are of the day. We're not those who would be surprised by a thief. No, He's coming as the groom, the bridegroom, to take us to that place that He has made ready. Should that happen today? Should Jesus be down at the threshing floor tonight? Are you washed and anointed and dressed and ready to meet Him? The entire fourth chapter of the book of Ruth ends with the marriage of Ruth. Ruth and Boaz. The Gentile outsider married to the kinsman redeemer and brought in. And Revelation 19.7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Are you ready? Are you ready? If Jesus should come today, are you ready? Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. If you're not, I pray that you get ready. And it begins by giving your heart to Jesus Christ, by accepting Him as your Lord and Savior. It continues by getting washed, becoming anointed. And if you desire that, pray with me right now. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. The stuff of the world, Jesus, it sticks to me. It makes me dirty. It doesn't smell very good. I'm tired of it. Lord, I'm tired of living in that place of mourning. Of despair for all that is behind me. For what I've done. For the sin and the guilt. And I want to be clean. And I want to be free. And so this morning, Jesus... I declare you to be my Lord and my Savior. And I confess your name as the name that can save me, the only name. And I believe that you went through the threshing to save me from it. In your death on the cross, I believe in your resurrection. Come now and enter my life. And give me eyes to look for your coming, I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.